This is the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. Hello, everybody, wherever you are. This is Trevor, Lest, Paul. <laughs> Paul, how are you doing? Doing good, man. Good to see you again. I'm uh, excited to talk today. It feels like it's been a while. I, I know I said that last time, too, but I know. I've been on holiday, and so I, I had a nice uh, separation from real world life for uh, about a week over yeah. the last since the last time we spoke. Consequently, I'm not prepared at all for today's uh, chat. I'll just turn this one over to Paul. That's right. I like that you showed up in your Hawaiian shirt and flip flops today. That's a nice touch. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I've been I've been shoveling the snow, uh, but I've refused to uh, dress up for that. You know, I mm-hmm. want want to keep the vacation going on just a little bit longer. <laughs> I don't blame you. Sounds wonderful. Oh, well. I do want to start today with a, a a word of thanks to a new patron. I have not written to Cass Penfold yet to express my thanks that way. Uh, we'll just do it here, and then I'll I will write. But Cass Penfold is a new uh, patron at the seven dollar a month level. Thank you so much, Cass. I I really do appreciate it. It makes a a big um, help, and it's it's encouraging. It's nice and. Uh, you know, of course, I know many of you who listening are not patrons. This is not a call out to you. We appreciate your listening. We appreciate your feedback, your comments, or just just you downloading the episode. Um, this has been so much fun. So thanks, everybody. Yeah, thanks, Cass, and thanks, everybody. That's exciting. All right, Paul. As I said, I've been on holiday, mm-hmm. so I've been. Um, I, I put on hold a few of the books I was reading before I left because I didn't want to carry, um, I especially didn't want to carry the books of Jacob Massive Hardback down right. to Mexico. Um, but I was also reading Devil House by John Darnielle and really enjoying that. I've been getting back into that. Um, but what have you been reading? Yeah, well, I have been still kind of working my way through The Art of Flight, which I've talked about a couple times on here by Sergio Patal. Um it's perfect just to sprinkle in between other books because it's kind of chopped up into different essays and different sections. Um, so yeah, I've been, I'm picking my way through that still. And yeah, like you, I've been reading devil house. As soon as I got it, I did, I did not drop (laughs) everything like we talked about, but, um, I really did pick it up right away and started reading it. And man, so good. I really like it. It I've talked about, yeah, I don't know (laughs) if you're finding the same thing as me, but there's just something about his writing and I still have not put my finger on what it is, but it just gets under my skin. And it, it just, I think about it, even when I'm not reading the book, when I finish one of his books, it just kind of sticks with me. And like I said, I haven't been able to exactly examine what it is, but man, he, it's just really haunting, I think is the best way for me to put it. So yeah, this yeah. one, um, it's got a lot in common with his other two books, but I also feel like he's taken some different steps, which I'm enjoying kind of exploring. Um, yeah, so I'm really liking that one. I don't know. I have one more, but do you want to talk a little bit about that one first? Or, Well, the thing that surprises me is that I have stayed up late at night reading it, even though it's not really a horror story that, like mm-hmm. the cover would, would suggest. I mean, it's got, got this really cool cover, I think. Uh, looks like a good old horror story, and I had no idea. I just started reading it when it showed up. But it's still exceptionally compelling because we're dealing with this uh, crime writer, a nonfiction uh, writer. He, 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 he's gotten his name by, you know, going places and investigating true crimes um, that have shaken small communities. And, mm-hmm. and here he is in, in, in a new situation. He's actually moved into the house where the crime t- took place 
it all sounds like a perfect setup for a horror story, but really it's a disassembling of what we are doing this for. You know, what is it about crime writing? What is this about right. reading about these things? What does it do to these communities? But it's still in, in a way that, like you said, gets under your skin. It's not some moralistic tract that, that Darnielle is, is, is writing. He's very um, clever with the structure of the book and with, I don't know, it, it's, it's very unique. I know. Yeah, that's exa- that's a great description. And what you just said about how it's not a horror, horror book, even though you thought it was going to be, that's kind of what I found with all of his books is whatever expectations I have going into them or whenever I start to kind of put my finger <laughs> on what I think it's about, it just subtly shifts. But it, subtlety is really, to me, what he's so good at is the psychology of a small town, the psychology of a crime. He's really big on kind of like, like one of his books, Universal Harvester, dealt a lot with like VHS tapes mm-hmm. or like these pieces of media or a piece of a document or a book and just the way that it kind of exists in its own space and the different impacts it has on people. And this one gets into a lot of that with, you know, I don't want to, I don't know exactly how far along you are, but just when they're inside of this shop and they're, it's an old adult bookstore mm-hmm. and he's talking about all these different covers of these VHS tapes and some of these other, you know, obviously other things that are going on in there, but just this idea of objects and the impacts that they can have both for what their intended purpose is, but also in other ways like memory and, and all these other things. It's just, boy, I don't know. Like I said, it really, I can't stop thinking about his books (laughs) and the way that it can get erased, but not the haunting is still there. Like he's moved into this house, but it's quite different from mm-hmm. what it was, it's been revamped. I mean, they're trying to move on and sell it. And so it's it's been remodeled, but he's looking for the traces of the past in it. It's, it's, it's a great, it's a great read. Yeah, um, it really is. I forget. Have you read any of his other stuff before? No. And I feel uh, now I need to go back and do it. I got, and I don't, I don't think I have it anymore, but I got their art of universal harvester that mm. came in the VHS cassette oh, tape cool. um, cover it like had to be kind rewind on the, you know, it was just, it was an old plastic VHS cover uh, fit for the book. I mean, that, that was really cool. Uh, that was a fun package to open, but I didn't read it. I, sh- but I, I'm, I'm going to definitely go back and, and do it now because this is really, this has really intrigued me to his work yeah. and what he does. Oh, that's awesome. And I, <laughs> I won't, I don't want to keep repeating myself, but I think I've mentioned that I had a really great experience listening to the audio version of Wolf and White Van. So to you or to anybody else out there, if you want to give a try to an audiobook, I would highly recommend. Hmm. He, he reads them. And I think that is part of what got under my skin so much is there's something about his voice. You know, he's obviously a maybe best known as a musician, you know, as the lead singer of the Mountain Goats. And so his performance and his voice and everything, too, there's just something it's it's subtle. And he doesn't do a lot of like theatrical you know, voices or anything like that. But there's just something about it that's just it works perfectly with his style. So. Nice, nice. Well, yeah. what's the other one you're reading? Well, yeah, the, the other one I'm reading is a really short book that just came out and I actually finished it in like a day or two. And then I liked it well enough, but then I watched this video, this interview between the author and the translator. And so now I'm actually reading it a second time within a week, uh, just because it's another one that's kind of gotten under my skin. So it's The Employees by Olga Raun. Um, so I was going to try to describe it, but I actually found the description just perfect. So I'm just going to read that really quickly. It says the crew of the 6,000 ship consists of those who were born and those who were made. 
those who will die, and those who will not. When the ship takes on a number of strange objects from the planet New Discovery, the crew is perplexed to find itself becoming deeply attached to them, and human and humanoid employees alike start aching for the same things, warmth and intimacy. Loved ones who have passed, shopping and child-rearing, our shared, faraway Earth, which now only persists in memory. Gradually, the crew members come to see their work in a new light, and each employee is compelled to ask themselves whether they can carry on as before and what it means to be truly living. Structured as a series of witness statements compiled by a workplace commission, Brown's crackling prose is as chilling as it is moving, as exhilarating as it is foreboding. It says the employees probes into what it means to be human while delivering an overdue critique of a life governed by the logic logic of productivity. So, you know, like I said, I was going to try to put it into words, but I read that and I was like, that's just such a, a perfect description. And it's just a really odd book. It's structured, as it said, in these little interview snippets. So it's this commission who's interviewing these employees of the spaceship that's been drifting around in space. And because it's in the snippet form and all these interviews, they're numbered, but they're completely jumbled up the order. So it just, it'll start with 04, then 41, then 67, then 02. And so from the beginning, you're kind of wrong footed. You don't really know what's going on. Um, And I think that's absolutely purposeful by the author because you don't even know some of these are humans that are on the ship that are employees and some are humanoids. And so she does a really interesting thing with like blurring the lines of what does it mean to be human? And then they find these objects, which are just almost like these abstract, like they're kind of like rocks, but they're kind of like liquid and she doesn't really describe them. And so she just goes into that too. There's all these memories that pop up when the, when the different, employees are around these objects or smells and all these things. So it's, I don't know. I I'm not sure that I'm doing a great job describing it, but that's why I ended up reading it a second time almost immediately (laughs) is just trying to get my mind wrapped around it. It's really interesting. And like I said, I watched this, um, this interview, this on YouTube with the author and then the uh, translator who's Martin Aiken, who a lot of people probably know he's done a lot of big translated books recently and it's hosted by Scandinavia house and I would highly recommend someone who um, is interested in the book or has read it, checks that out because it just talks a lot about this book in relation to like the pandemic, for example. Like I thought Martin Aiken brought up a really interesting point where he talked about how, you know, a lot of us now have been working from home. And so in some ways we've been separated from other employees and from our coworkers and from our work, but then in other strange ways, our work has kind of invaded our house. You know, it comes into our home through Zoom meetings or the fact that we're staying up late working at our house. So anyway, it's just this interesting, there's all kinds of lines that are blurred in this book. And it's really, uh, it's really interesting. It's unlike anything I've read, it's, I'm not a huge sci-fi person. And so I think that's part of why I didn't know what to expect going into it. But it has strong sci-fi elements, but that's absolutely just the surface of what's going on here. So it's kind of interesting. I, um, I didn't know anything about that book, but I posted that you were reading it on my Instagram mm-hmm. and was looking at the covers and such. And yeah, I would have, I, I don't know. I would never have known anything about that. That's pretty cool. I'll have to check yeah. it out. And yeah, you, you should. I myself am reading. So I started when I was on vacation, you know, just thinking, oh, I'll just get one of these little trade paperbacks. So I finally started reading um, Dan Simmons' Hyperion. Oh, have cool. you ever read this? Or I've not read it, but I remember that cover distinctly, probably from 
I don't know. Borders or Walden Books or somewhere. 1989 won the Hugo okay. and was part of a four book series called the Hyperion Cantos. And what got me interested was that it's structured almost like the Canterbury Tales with a bunch of pilgrims going back and telling their story, you know, to, uh, as they're traveling to this, to this destination. But it's, it's really well written. I am really enjoying this and I've seen it pop. It just kind of, I, I didn't really know very much about it, which is really strange to me because this is back when I was reading more of this stuff, right. but some people call it the, the best science fiction book ever. You know, if Dune was the it book for one generation, Hyperion was the it book for uh, the next. Mm-hmm. And I don't, don't, I still don't know what, what's going to happen, what's coming. I'm not too far into it yet, but really interesting um, setting. And again, the writing's quite fun. The first part is the uh, the priest tale. And it's quite a ways in the future. It's a Catholic priest who recognizes that, you know, this religion is is a dying religion in this new new age and all of this. Mm-hmm. Um, and for some reason that I still don't know, he he's he's traveling inland in this and this um, world of Hyperion to find a 400 year old uh, group of people who crash landed somewhere in there and basically been inaccessible for 400 years. You know, it's like an old explorer uh, story of going and meeting the natives, you know, of a, of a country that, you know, conquistador kind of setting. <laughs> and right. I would never have expected that in the sci-fi, but the the stuff is so strange. The time, you know, it plays with time. Um, in fact, one thing that's really interesting is, um, I'll just read the back of the book a little bit. It says, On the world called Hyperion, beyond the law of the hegemony of man, there waits the creature called the Shrike. There are those who worship it. There are those who fear it. And there are those who have vowed to destroy it. And then this is the part where I was like, well, that sounds cool. It says, and there are, or, sorry. In the Valley of the Time Tombs, where huge brooding structures move backwards through time, the Shrike waits for them all. And I'm like, whoa, big structures moving backwards through time? Okay, I can I can get onto this. But anyway, these um, these seven pilgrims are set forth to seek answers, uh, et cetera, et cetera, you know. But yeah, we're both wow. reading some, some pretty funky sci-fi. So <laughs> I know, I was going to say, that's got to be a first. That's interesting that we both happen to be reading sci-fi. That's not... Definitely not one of my go-tos, and I don't think you know. I know you've read a lot of fantasy, but I don't know that sci-fi is just necessarily one that you go to very often. I just I don't never know what to look for. Um, mm-hmm. I do like sci-fi, especially you know I love sci-fi movies and such. Some of those mm-hmm. are my favorite movies, but I I'm not too well versed in in the world of sci-fi books. I've got the Library of America science fiction collections from the 50s and 60s, and really enjoyed all of those that I've read. Mm-hmm. I haven't finished them all yet, but. Um, I think I could get into it more than I am for sure. Yeah. Six months ago or so, we read the Isaac Asimov's uh, foundation uh-huh. series with our son. And those were really good. I mean, those are speaking of foundation, foundational <laughs> to a lot of, you know, people's views of sci-fi and I can certainly see why. So, and I yeah. never read that. I, I bought it. Um, I don't know, a few months ago around Christmas time, I think with some of my money, cause it was like mm-hmm. $6 and a, again, I've been really enjoying just getting some of these trade paperback that I can pack around with me wherever I go um, easier. And, but I haven't started it yet. 
Yeah. So, all right. Well, we've been we've been going on for a little bit here. Uh, we are here today, listeners, to do something we'll probably do again. This, so we'll call this assigned reading part one. And the way that we did this is Paul and I both selected a short story for the other for first both. I mean, we both have reread what we what we had read, and in the case of me. I picked one that I had not read yet, um, so I had to read both of them for the first time. But we picked short stories, and it was just like, hey, we'll, we'll read these, and we'll come together in a few weeks and talk about them. In the future, we'll probably include you, listeners, on that. Maybe we'll do it at the end of an episode so that people know what we're going to be talking about in the future and can read along before we get to it. But uh, it was kind of fun. We we sat sat down and said, "Okay, by tomorrow, seven o'clock, you have to send over your choice, and we'll just go to it." And we had some parameters, like it wasn't, you know, I'm choosing the books of Jacob, you know, or, right. you know, it was a, a short story, preferably not a novella short story, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> just to make sure we could do this. But I found it very enjoyable. Um, it was kind of fun that night to get your choice, Paul, with his Lucia Berlin's. A Manual for Cleaning Women. Not the collection, just the short story. And then I recommended Mavis Gallant's The Ice Wagon Going Down the Street, which I had not read yet, but I have kind of a goal of finally getting into some of Gallant's writing. Um, so we picked it. But let's let's go ahead and, and first start a little bit of a conversation about assigned reading in general. Um I know a lot of people have had terrible experiences with assigned reading and maybe even point back to that as a time when they stopped reading altogether for a while. Even some of, you know, some of our, our great literary bookish friends online have had times where assigned reading kind of derailed them. It's not really my experience when it comes to assigned reading. I was the the kid who would ask the professor for the syllabus, you know, a semester in advance before they'd even made it. So right. that I could go to the bookstore and start, and uh, it's just this this promise of something. It didn't always like the books, but it was exciting to me. Um, when I first went to graduate school, it was probably four or five months beforehand. I'm signing up for classes, and one of them was a women's literature class. And I wrote the professor, um, you know, before the summer it even began, and said, "Hey, what books are we going to read this fall?" <laughs> And she she did send me a list of ones she was considering, and it was a lot of fun to to get going on that. Um, so I've always had pretty good luck with assigned reading, and have found it exciting. Uh, what about you? Yeah, no, I would agree. I was thinking about this. I mean, I think in high school there was probably a time, you know, sophomore junior year, where I was one of the stereotypical students who would, you know, despite loving reading when I was assigned my Antonia or, you know, Hemingway, I would probably sneak off and get the Cliff's notes and kind of fudge my way through it, which looking back is so dumb. Cause I'm like, those are like, <laughs> you know, my Antonia, for example, is one of my favorite stories. Maybe I could have been exposed who, to it at an earlier age, or maybe you would have hated it. You that's know, the who thing. knows? Yeah, who knows? exactly. But it yeah, is, no, it is a tricky thing. You, you're mm-hmm. being pushed to read something that you didn't come to naturally. Right. And so, you know, I don't know. I, I certainly don't think, oh, if these people who had bad experiences, it's on them. I don't feel that way. Oh, it no. just was different from mine. Yeah, no, I agree. But I would say, especially as I started to get into college, I'm, I'm with you. That's where I feel like some of my the, the reading that was assigned to me was one of 
kind of those pivotal moments in my reading life where I, I think I've talked about this a little bit where it started to open up these whole new horizons of things I just didn't even know, or I'd heard a name, but all of a sudden I start digging in and there's something about for me in college, especially like hearing a professor who's passionate and knowledgeable, just discussing something that they love and that excitement is contagious, you know? So I remember specifically, I mean, we've talked about like Jhumpa Lahiri, Interpreter of Maladies was an assigned reading book that became one of my all-time favorites or I remember that was one up... of the women's literature books by the way oh awesome um, I had already read it but um but yeah, yeah. I had not brought that up before but mm-hmm. oh, that's awesome like Tess of the Durbervilles by Thomas Hardy was another one that I just absolutely loved when it got assigned to me you know um Angels in America by T- Tony Kushner or like the Odyssey I remember sitting up in this like old it was like this, the very top of this old building on the campus. And it was like, you could see the pipes, like the boiler pipes running over the top of the, and it was kind of too warm in there and everybody was packed in. And it was just like an old fashioned classroom. And I remember reading the Odyssey and having our professor talk about it. And just, I could feel my mind just expanding in that moment. So yeah, I guess I've kind of had different experiences with assigned reading where over the course of my life, it's kind of evolved from a little bit of like, eh, to like I said, I, I really can't credit it for some of the best books I've ever read. So, yeah. And this specific assignment, I just found to be really fun. It was fun to to dig through my shelves and think of some, you know, different options mm-hmm. of, of what we could read together. And then, like you said, I was sitting there waiting for your message to come through to see what you were going <laughs> to assign. And I was excited to see it was Mavis Gallant. So, yeah, it's been a lot of fun. I, I had the same experience of that thrill of, oh, what's Paul going to choose I'm excited to read it. I hope it's good. <laughs> yeah, there's always a little, I don't know, not pressure, because I'm, but I always like when I'm picking something like this, I'm like, I hope Trevor likes it. Yeah, for sure. We, we weren't trying to punish each other, but to really, I think, I think both of us, it sounds like, had that, that feeling of this is supposed to be fun mm-hmm. and supposed to lead to some, some conversations about these stories. That's where this is going, listeners, is to specifically talking about these two stories for a bit. But, uh, you know, there are other types of assigned reading that I don't do so well with, like book clubs or, um, I don't know, even when someone brings a book and says, hey, you should read this book. I have a harder time with that. I don't quite know why. Maybe we'll maybe we'll dig into the psychology around that someday. But uh, but this kind of stuff was a delight. It probably is a reason that we we said let's do them as short stories. Mm-hmm. I mean, we wanted to test the water a little bit and make sure it didn't become a chore um, and reading something when we, we wanted to be reading something else, you know, it wasn't part of our plans and, and here Paul made me read, you know, whatever <laughs> it was. Um, I doubt that would be the case. It could still be exciting someday to maybe do that. Mm-hmm. Um, give ourselves a, a window of time to, to finish off a, a book that the other one has recommended. But yeah, short stories is also a really nice way to do this because there are tons of short stories that I want to read. And I read quite a few short stories, but I had not read any Mavis Gallant stories yet. And on top of that, I had not read any Lucia Berlin stories, even though I have uh, one of her collections on my shelf. I just hadn't mm-hmm. hadn't done it yet. You know, there's so many. Yeah. And we easily could have chosen, you know... Uh, these in, in 10 years. And we, you know, if we did this, this podcast together um, that long and we're still doing this, the, you know, we, we would have that much worth of, of material mm-hmm. and who knows when we would have gotten to these otherwise. So I, I liked, I liked this opportunity. Yeah, uh, I did too. 
Yeah. And I thought it was interesting to see, you know, I don't know about you, but as I was going through the process of choosing them, like, do you go with a well-known traditional one? Do you go with one you've already read? Do you go with mm-hmm. one you've been meaning to read? So yeah, if we continue to do this, I could see it being fun, just branching out. There's Very so many different a little bit. choices. Yeah. Well, and I thought, do we do ones that we've talked about, but you know, should I pick the piano tuners wives by William Trevor? Mm-hmm. Should we just pick a temporary matter by Jhumpa Lahiri since we keep on mentioning it, right. but haven't really talked about it, you know, too much, um, you know, or do we just do something completely new for me? I didn't mm-hmm. know if you'd read um, the Mavis Gallant story before. No. And, uh, but I'm assuming you had read uh, Manual for Cleaning Women. Is that right? Before I, That's right. Yeah. I'd read that, that whole collection back when it came out. I think it was 2015. Um, when it, it was released and there was, as you may remember, quite a bit of buzz mm-hmm. about it, which is pretty fascinating because I was, I didn't know much about um, Lucia Berlin, but I was reading up a little bit and she had been yeah. writing for years and years and years with, you know, here and there, she'd get something published, you know, in, in a magazine and things like that. But most of her fame came posthumously, you know, mm-hmm. and mostly through this collection, really. Um, it was 11 years after she died when this was published so yeah it hit the new york times bestseller list and it was Which actually pretty, pretty amazing i know a, a short story collection posthumously hits the new york times bestseller that's really impressive i know it's crazy it said within a couple of weeks that it had outsold all of her previous books combined hmm. so whatever it was you know the fates aligning and i'm sure that you know some of it had to do with marketing and things but mm-hmm. yeah right when that came out i did i picked it up and, and i read it and Oh, yeah, I, I don't know something. It's it's one of those short story collections that I, I still think about a lot. And that's why when I was trying to decide what to pick for this, I figured it's been a while since I've read this. And I just have such fond memories. I mean, fond. It's not always easy subject matter, but just pretty gritty at times. Yeah, it's very gritty, but, but it's just so excellent, I think. So mm-hmm. I wanted to, to kind of share it with you and, and get your thoughts. Um, so glad yeah, you, you want to just dive in. Yeah, let's start with that one. That's what we'll start with first listeners. We will probably, I mean, I don't know if either of these are, it's not like this is an Agatha Christie novel that we read. We could, you know, just talking about spoilers here, the potential Mm -hmm. to spoil these. Frankly, I think with many short stories and these in particular, it's the second time you read it that it really comes alive. And so I'm not going to be too hesitant. I mean, of course, listeners, we invite you to go and find these stories, read them come back and listen to this and then share your thoughts with us. We, I yeah. would love to hear your thoughts and we'll, you know, do that invitation at the end too, if we remember. <laughs> right. But, well, but, even if you want to just pause this episode real fast, I mean, I know that both of them are available online, the full text. So you could, you could run mm-hmm. off and just read them real quickly. Um, but yeah, like you said, I think something like this, they're not necessarily very plot driven, but either way, I think it's going to be one of those where the spoiler Spoiler alerts are out there because I think there's no way to talk about these in any depth without giving giving stuff away. So. Yeah, we we can try to introduce each of them before we spoil it. You yeah. Know? So let's talk sure. a little bit about your experience with Lucia Berlin, um, and what you've learned. You were just about to dig in there, mm-hmm. and when we do come to where we're just going to be kind of free with our conversation, we will note that again. We'll we'll talk about. Um, we're moving into spoiler territory, but for the for the first few minutes, let's just chat maybe in general about this story. It is the only one that I read. I did not proceed. You know, I was on vacation, Paul. I, right. <laughs> I did not proceed to read the rest of the collection. So my, uh, for those of you who have not read Lucia Berlin, 
I'm with you. I'll be your, your, um, you know, your voice in all of this. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I am very excited to read more. I found it quite the fascinating story and one that I did have to read twice to start to really kind of get into. Uh, The first time I read it, I just felt like I was drifting along on the buses with the cleaning woman. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Um, But anyway, I'm still babbling. Go ahead. No, no. I actually found that with both of these stories, both of these stories today, I think neither one of them is, is an easy read. And I don't mean that like in, I mean that it is a compliment. They're ones that you can really dig in. And the more you read them and, and think about them, the more you get out of them. But yeah, I mean, just to give an overall summary of this, I think a lot of her stories are autobiographical. Um, I had read a little bit about her biography and she led quite the life. She, you know, lived in these mining camps in Alaska and she was, um, you know, abused when she was younger. She went through a time where she was very rich and lived in Santiago, Chile. You know, she lived in New York. She was an ER nurse in Oakland. So, I mean, she lived (laughs) all kinds of lives. It almost sounds like she's, you know, a bunch of people. She had a chronic alcohol addiction, just all kinds of stuff. And a lot of that pops up in her fiction, um, especially in in the other stories within this collection. So I think a lot of this, um, this, this story in particular has some autobiographical, you know, qualities to it as well. So, you know, it's a lot about lives of people who are just doing really tough jobs and leading really tough lives. Um, this particular story, it was told, it's told in the first person and it's divided up into sections by the names of different bus routes that she's riding on. So like Mm -hmm. 43, Shattuck, Berkeley, and it's all taking place around the Oakland area. And so it's like her, her, her present thoughts as mm-hmm. she's taking that bus ride. So it's in present tense mm-hmm. for the most part. And she's talking about various things. It just, it comes out quite naturally uh, as she's riding around the bus in that in almost fugue state. Yeah. At times. That's exactly right. And it captures that feeling of like, you know, you just got back from vacation, like when you're traveling or when you're on a bus or something, sometimes you're just kind of in that zone of just existence where you're, there's nowhere you can go. You're, you're in your seat and you're just drifting along. And so as she's driving along, she's looking out the bus windows and she's talking about the different details on the street that she sees, or she's talking about the other passengers on the bus. Um, and so it starts to form this, this really interesting, it's almost like a cocoon where you're, you're really in her head and just drifting along in the rain on the bus and looking out at these scenes of poverty or these hardworking people, or there's trash drifting down the street and all these different things. So, um, you know, the, the language I would say is fairly straightforward. It's not mm-hmm. ornate. It's gritty. Like you said, is probably a good way to describe it, both the language and the content. Um, but, you know, I think what I found interesting about it, we've talked a lot about how fiction can transport you into other people's lives and other people's heads. And this is a perfect example of that, just talking about the details of different people's lives and how hard it can be. You know, there's the socioeconomic levels of of just dealing with some of these people. They just don't have access to a car, for example. So they're stuck at the bus stop. They're waiting. Mm -hmm. They're driving around and, you know, the hours just spent waiting in line and things like that. So it's a lot of these details that so many of us take for granted that are actually far more complicated and, and problematic. Um, you know, I thought that was one of the really interesting things that made it hard to read, but also so compelling. Well, before we get into the spoiler, why don't we introduce some of the writing a little bit? All right, so here we go. 42 Piedmont. 
Slow bus to Jack London Square. Maids and old ladies. I sat next to an old blind woman who was reading Braille, her finger gliding across the page, slow and quiet, line after line. It was soothing to watch, reading over her shoulder. The woman got off at 29th, where all the letters have fallen from the sign, National Products, by the blind, except for blind. 29th is my stop, too, but I have to go all the way downtown to cash Mrs. Jessel's check. If she pays me with a check one more time, I'll quit. Besides, she never has any change for car fare. Last week, I went all the way to the bank with my own quarter, and she'd forgotten to sign the check. So then it goes, you know, for a paragraph or so, it goes into some more details about Mrs. Jessel, and then I'll follow up here. She follows me from room to room, saying the same things over and over. I'm going as cuckoo as she is. I keep saying I'll quit, but I feel sorry for her. I'm the only person she has to talk to. Her husband is a lawyer, plays golf, and has a mistress. I don't think Mrs. Jessel knows this, or remembers. Cleaning women know everything. So, yeah, that's a great little example of just, there is the, the realities of what she's dealing with, the fact that she's, you know, getting screwed over by these different things of, of taking a bus clear down and then the, the employer doesn't even sign the check. And so she's like wasted a whole day. But then I think as gritty as all this is, there's also the kindness and yeah. the humanity in there that I think is kind of exemplified there. Like I didn't mention it, but Mrs. Jessel has having some memory issues. And so she has these notes, misspelled notes all around the house, reminding her to take certain pills and different things like that. So, you know, there's a sadness of, of some of these people where she's cleaning their homes and she gets these insights into all the damages that have taken place in their lives as well as her own. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's this whole part here where she says, I would, uh, I, I'll quit. But I feel sorry for her. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm the only person she has to talk to. And you get into Mrs. Jessel's husband and it, it's it's very sad. And many of them are like that. They're kind of, you know, they're, they're exploitative of, of our narrator mm-hmm. to an extent. Um, there's one um, a later on that is just seems like an awful person. But even there, our narrator feels some sympathy for her and humanizes her and it's all while she's doing these little bus rides, you know, it's, it's very stream of consciousness, but it plays out. So listeners, we will, let's move into spoiler chat on a manual for cleaning women, at least as much as we can spoil this one. Let's just right. chat a little bit more about it. But I, I just, the first time I read it, I just, you know, it's so stream of consciousness in a way. Mm-hmm. And it just goes into these various homes that I, you know, I'm I'm look I'm in I'm wandering through the forest and, and seeing each little tree and each yeah. little thing and focusing on it, but not quite getting a picture of the whole. But I think you you nailed it even this in that that initial paragraph there or those you know initial paragraphs. She has had a rough life. She wasn't always a cleaning woman. Um, she was with someone named Tear, a man who has died, mm-hmm. and she is vowed to go with him eventually she's she's actually one of the reasons she, she's still doing cleaning is it gives her a chance to steal sleeping pills that mm-hmm. she's stocking up for for that day somewhere down the line and so she's got some distance with these people you know she can she can afford to kind of already see herself as gone and that allows her to have a little bit more of a distant perspective on their lives a little more sympathetic maybe Mm -hmm. um all the while she is herself 
in grief and um, despair and preparing for her own suicide somewhere down Mm -hmm. the line. Um, But we know it's not as cold as all that. She herself is in, in shock as well. Um, She doesn't actually want to kill herself. She Mm -hmm. hasn't cried yet. She hasn't addressed her, you know, partner's uh, death in any healthy kind of way other than, well, it's time for me to start preparing as well. And so there's so many different layers to this story. I know. No, it's true. And I'm glad you brought that up because there's some, so much of that numbness, like we've talked about where she's riding on the bus and just kind of doing these kind of thankless, tough, hardworking jobs. So she kind of gets into this, just this zone of stream of consciousness. But man, every once in a while, Lucia Berlin will have her drop in a line about terror, her husband who Mm -hmm. died. And she just does it right in the middle of this other stuff. And it's just like getting punched in the gut, you know? So there's one that I had, she's talking about how sometimes she'll just take a break while she's cleaning. And so she says, thank God they always have at least one TV show that they're addicted to. I flip the vacuum on for half an hour, a soothing sound, lie down under the piano with an end dust rag clutched in my hand, just in case I just lie there and hum. And I think I refuse to identify your body tear, which caused a lot of hassle. I was afraid I would hit you for what you did died. And so it's just oh stuff like that, where, you know, you're just, you're going along with her, her everyday life. And then you can tell that this stuff is just weighing on her and she just drops in. Sometimes it's like a, a sentence or a short paragraph where she'll just start talking to Tara and just, you know, I can't handle mm-hmm. you being dead, Tara, but you know that, you know, just little things like that yeah. where whew, those things are just so rough. And always looking for something soothing in the first paragraph. Um, it was soothing to watch, you know, this woman reading in Braille, mm-hmm. the lights that kind of go past on the bus are soothing. Um, you just talked about the sound of the vacuum being soothing. It's yeah. like, and you, this is what we're dealing with in some ways when we flip on our phones these days, you know, is right. something just kind of that just hums along for a little bit so that we can uh, be separate from what we're trying to ignore and this does such a good job of pulling pulling that together. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also thought it was interesting. Here she is, the cleaning w- women, you know, one of this group. And she she often um, puts into the notes in par- in parentheses, note for cleaning women. Mm-hmm. Don't work for psychologists or psychiatrists, camera, which it is yeah. <laughs> while she's doing it right there. Um, and then she tells you why. And it's it's all of these little notes. And it's interesting to me that she is talking about their role as cleaning women for these people who prefer not to see her and don't know how to behave, you know, especially white American women. Mm-hmm. What do they do while she's there? They feel embarrassed. Um, they they almost tend to her because they have no idea what else to do. And there's her role as serving them. And then the way she talks about the bus drivers who serve her. Yeah. You know, and, and, and take her places. And, and there's, there's almost this little minor conflict is if one of them drives away before all the cleaning women get to the stop, you know, they have to wait another hour. But at the same time, if one of the cleaning women throws up on the bus, it's the bus driver who has to clean it up. And she, yeah. you know, this is another, another servant serving um, class and that she's reliant upon. And it just, again, there's so many interesting elements to this. So well rendered. I was, I was blown away by the story. Good, the yeah. second time I read it, I, again, the first time I was just trying to keep my, keep my bearings, but I, I liked it. 
and was very excited to read it again. But as I read it the second time, I was just, you know, one thing after another, just, mm-hmm. whoa, 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 whoa. <laughs> when you were talking about like, yeah, all the class levels, <clears throat> the different levels of class, obviously there's the the richer or more well-off people who are hiring the cleaning women. But then even within the, the ranks of the cleaning women, she talks about how there's like the older cleaning women, since she's relatively new and she's come to this only <laughs> under duress, you know, a lot of them haven't accepted her right away. And so she says right away, I quickly mentioned that, you know, my husband just died and I have four children. And it's like, she's trying to like, she's not true. Right. Um, you know, she, she's making up the story in order to, to fit in, fit in, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm glad you mentioned the advice to cleaning women, because obviously the story is a manual for cleaning women. That's the title. And so, like you said, some of those little bits of advice that she drops in, I really like, because for one thing, well, I'll, I'll, there's a few different reasons I like them. Some of them are just funny. Mm-hmm. Um, I really liked, there's ones, that I, I, I don't have it right in front of me, but like she'll say, never work in a house with preschoolers. Babies yeah. are great. You can spend hours looking at them, holding them. But the older ones, you get shrieks, dried Cheerios, accidents hardened and walked on in the Snoopy pajama foot. Or she'll just talk about these different things. Like um, what I found interesting was so often, you know, like you said, a lot of times the people who have hired her don't know how to handle her but there's also this whole thing about like yes sometimes we steal but it's not what you think you know like we're not just gonna like steal a couple dimes out of your ashtray like mm-hmm. so it's like the there's like this power struggle sometimes <laughs> or or it's almost like a um not just power but like for humanity like kind of proving that you're still important so there's um she says advice to cleaning women take everything that your lady gives you and say thank you you can leave it on the bus in the crack and it's just like this whole idea of like sometimes some of these people out of guilt or whatever obligation they're they're offloading. I think there's one part where she talks about like hangers and old bras that mm-hmm. they give her. And it's like this stuff that like it's, maybe it makes the person feel a little better, but it's like, you know, what am I going to do with this stuff? So there's just so much complexity that I find fascinating with the different relationships between. This, yeah, the psychology. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there she is working at where there are two psychologists, mm-hmm. but I think that plays a role. And even this, um, here's another one, cleaning women. As a rule, never work for friends. Sooner or later, they resent you because you know so much about them. Or else you'll no longer like them because you do. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> I mean, there's, and then, but, but, but she says that. And then the next line, but Linda and Bob are good old friends. She's going to work at Linda's house. This is her mm-hmm. old friend. In fact, I found this just so sad. These are her neighbors when she lived with Tear. She can still look out at the fence and see the BBs where he would go out and shoot um, for fun. And so she, you know, that's another reason that she's working for uh, Linda and Bob, good old friends Mm -hmm. who are filthy, who are doing this maybe to help her, but also fully using her because they don't even clean up after themselves. Right. And but it gives her a chance to go back to the place where she lived, and whether that's a good thing or not, you know, that, again, that's this is the psychology of it, right? Well, and just again, like some of the the hypocrisy, or maybe not hypocrisy, but just showing. So you know what she's doing, like you said, is maybe she'll steal a few pills here and there, and some people might kind of judge her for stealing these these pills and everything. But then she talks about like as she's going around, she says these people I work for each have enough uppers or downers to put a hell's angel away for 20 years. The Blums have a lot of pills, a plethora of pills. She has uppers. He has downers. Mr. Or Dr. Blum has belladonna pills. 
I don't know what they do, but I wish it was my name. And so it's just like these, I don't know. It's just so interesting. I found like she's, she's fallen in, in society's eyes down to this other level, but the hypocrisy of like, what's good for some people might be judged by other people. And just also, I think it's important to, to point out, like she's doing this with, you know, some pretty dark end goals, taking these pills, but these other people who on the surface look like they have a much more successful life. They are just getting by. They're taking pills. They're doing things to cope just like she is. So uh, just so much complexity in, in the different levels of, of class and, and where people are in their lives and things like that. Well, should we kind of look at the end? Yeah. It's her realization that she, and she finally says it tear. I don't want to die at all. Actually. Mm-hmm. You know, she's she not only is she planning this suicide, you know, you, you think for certain reasons because she can't handle life. Partially, she's doing it out of guilt for surviving and for still being around and still wanting to live, even though Ter is gone. Mm-hmm. So. Yeah, I really like that part because she ends up working for this other woman who has lost her husband as well. And this woman mm-hmm. is finding her own ways of coping. She's sleeping odd hours and she's almost compulsively putting together puzzles. And so there's this missing puzzle piece. And so the narrator starts searching around on the ground and finds it. And there's like this Eureka moment where they, where she finds it and they both just start laughing and she tells some kind of dumb joke. And then they, that's when she says, Tara, I don't want to die at all actually. And it's almost like she, I don't know if it's just her finally admitting it to herself or finding this little piece of joy or, or somebody who has gone through a similar experience. Like it's, it's not really spelled out what it is that kind of makes her suddenly admit to herself that she doesn't want to follow through on this, this deal with tear to kind of end Mm -hmm. it all. So yeah, it's really interesting. And then, like you said, it it goes into one more description of, of a bus ride to close out and, you know, it's snowing and, and she's kind of just looking around. And then the very end it says, um, a Harley idles at the bus stop and some kids wave at the rasty rider from the bed of a 50 Dodge pickup truck. I finally weep. And that's, that's the end. It just leaves you. It's this kind of out of nowhere to some degree. Cause it kind of lulls you. Like it's another one of those narrative mm-hmm. pieces that we've been dealing with. And then she just drops it in your lap. And that comes about two paragraphs after her saying she doesn't want to die at all. So it's like, she's finally starting to come to grips with the idea that she's moving on. Yeah. Yeah, just just crazy stuff. I mean, in in, in the best way. It's such a, a rich story filled with that humanity, um, some compassion, and maybe a bit of anger and grief, and you know, it's all there. And in just I think thirteen pages, it's very short. Say. Oh, it's amazing. It's like the best short stories. It's always amazing what some of these authors can pack into just a few pages. Where by the time you finish this you feel like you know so much about not only her, but so many other lives. And it's like, uh-huh. how did she do that? <laughs> oh, well, we probably ought to move on. <clears throat> ah, to yeah, Our next one is going to take a lot of discussion too, I think. Yeah. Oh, we, we'll try and keep things going, you know, sprightly. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, uh, but let's move on to Mavis Gallant. So I chose this one, Paul, because again, I've wanted to read her stories for some time. Uh, the NYRB Classics has a, a several of several books of hers. I think four, maybe more, but four. And a few of those are are short story collections that have kind of compiled multiple of her collections. I think she mm-hmm. was probably best known as a short story writer. 
She's from Canada. So, you know, we're honorary Canadians, thanks to Dorian. Uh, we're going right. to take that with pride. And here we are, you know, um, reading reading this book that I also, or this story, I also think Dorian may be happy with that. Fle- yeah. believe I've seen that Dorian's quite the Mavis Gallant uh, pusher. Mm-hmm. I could be wrong. Dorian, help, help me, help me out there. Help me remember. Yeah. <laughs> but... It was also kind of fun to to pick her and, and read her because there's a really um, big, long kind of article in Granta from 2009 by Jumpa Lahiri. <laughs> I know she's a big fan. A big fan. And she says, this is how it starts. In 1997, I picked up a copy of Mavis Gallant's Home Truths, a collection of 16 stories published in 1981 from a library book sale in the small New England town where I was raised. The first story I read, the ice wagon going down the street, broke something in me. Something about my prior understanding of what a story can do and how. The story was a masterful chiaroscuro at once dense and nimble, urgent and orderly, light-hearted and dark. But about experiences both pedestrian and profound. It was virtuosic without fuss, compassionate without sentimentality, it seemed to have been written in a radically different way than any story I'd read before, a live wire that crackled from start to finish on the page. Uh, so that's that was uh, something I remember reading quite some time ago that made me go, oh, I'll have to read this Mavis Gallant someday. And then there's a really cool, if you, if you just Google this, you'll find these, but Francine Prose is also someone I really like to learn more about how she... Um, how she reads. You know, she's mm-hmm. written books about how to read as a writer and all of that. And she talks about the ending to the ice wagon going down the street. And she says, perhaps one reason why I so love the ending of Mavis Gallant's story, the ice wagon going down the street is that I've never quite understood it. (laughs) Mm -hmm. I always think that if I reread it one more time, it's meaning will disclose itself. Like the story it concludes, the ending seems perfect, mysterious, profound, It is also wildly original, almost experimental. I can't think of anything else in fiction remotely like it. So, of course, these are just great, you know, great introductions to this story. Um, Again, I've seen people talk about it on Twitter. Uh, I think that's where someone may mention, oh, I'm reading this story and I'll see Dorian clapping, you know, or something. Yeah, exactly. So so I'm I'm a little bit nervous that we, you know, we won't uh, we won't be able to crack this. I know when you have some of the great minds talking about how complex she is and like after multiple readings, they don't understand it. It's like, yeah, thanks a lot, Trevor. No, I'm just kidding. It's (laughs) well, that could be encouraging too. If they don't, we are under no obligation to fully um, explain the story and crack it. And that's, that's a nice, a nice delightful thing. (laughs) Well, I'm so glad you, you pointed out that Francine prose because I actually had that. I had found that myself and I was going to read it too. And I think that's really well done. And then, do you know the name Peter Orner? He's written some other books about reading and writing. And yeah. I was just real quickly going to read something that I found by him talking about her. And he says, by focusing so intently on her characters, Gallant traps reality, how weird and slippery day-to-day life is. Her stories are strange because our brains are strange. And the moments we choose to remember are strange. Gallant, as few others, nails the meandering, free associative quality of consciousness on the page. I've heard people ask, why isn't she better known? I wonder if it isn't because so many readers aren't looking for character. Plot reigns supreme. 
um, she's, he says, I wonder if Gallant's work doesn't always make some reader doesn't also make some readers uncomfortable. In her stories, you become so immersed so quickly that before you know it, you're mucking around deeply in someone else's screwed up life. <laughs> and I thought that was really good too. It's just, you know, why isn't she better known? Because she makes you kind of uncomfortable because you're just like thrown right into these really messy, complex lives. And I was surprised at how much I liked these characters in this story, even though they're not introduced as likable people. Right. So we're still not to the spoiler section, those listeners who are still listening um, and waiting for that. Let me let me introduce this. Here's here's how the ice wagon going down the street. First published in the New Yorker in the early '60s. It's about post-war years. Um, this is a you know a husband and wife story uh, to an extent, and it's about their time after World War II in Europe. Here's how it begins. Now that they are out of world affairs and back where they started, Peter Fraser's wife says. Everybody else did well in the international thing except us. You have to be crooked, he tells her. Or smart. Pity we weren't. (laughs) (laughs) That's how it starts. And I'm going to read the next one just because it's now goes, you know, those are the characters, Peter um, Frazier and his wife, Sheila. And they are now back in Canada. They have two daughters, Sandra and Jennifer, and they're living with Peter. Well, they say visiting. <laughs> they are visiting yeah. uh, Peter's unmarried sister, Lucille. They have been Lucille's guests for 17 weeks. <laughs> oh. <laughs> um, and here, here's the next paragraph after that. Um, or smart. Pity we weren't. It is Sunday morning. They sit in the kitchen, drinking their coffee, slowly, remembering the past. They say the names of people as if they were magic. Peter thinks Agnes Bruson, but there are hundreds of other names. As a private married joke, Peter and Sheila wear the silk dressing gowns they bought in Hong Kong. Each thinks the other a peacock, rather splendid, but they pretend the dressing gowns are silly and worn in fun. This is a couple that is extremely deluded. Um, They live under, under the illusion that they have imposed upon themselves and that they they live out for each other uh, because they can't quite handle that. They are not who they think they are. They, they never really were who they, who they thought they were. They, they expected great things to come. They expected this international, you know, experiment, this, um, this uh, going out into world affairs where really they were just trying to find a job that would make easy living and, and take it, you know, that Peter could be uh, very wealthy and known for his name and really not have to do anything um, serious and she could continue to wear nice things and you know while they go out to dinner in Paris but that's just not meant to be <laughs> Yeah. so maybe we can you know I don't know if you have any other introductory things but we can probably also just tell r- listeners we'll, we'll now be pretty free and just discuss this story now I think at this point you know is not that there's really spoilers but I think it makes sense for us just to start diving in and talking freely so Now's the time to pause and give it a quick read if you want to, listeners. Yeah. So what did you think, Paul? Give me give me your your initial impression. Yeah, I think my initial impression was a lot like what you described with the previous story, where I read it through the first time and and was impressed, but maybe did not get below the levels of the surface. You know, and so as I was going along, I was picking up 
bits and pieces, but not nearly everything that was going on. And that said, I think I could read this a hundred times and probably not pick up everything that's going on. But when I reread it is where I really started to notice some of the many subtle things that are tying everything together. But yeah, it's just like you said, it's, I started out not really liking the characters at all. I mean, they're not <laughs> overtly sympathetic. They're, they've been 17 weeks at his sister's house. They have their steamer trunk, like blocking a corner of the kitchen. They forced the poor sister to like sleep on the couch basically because their kids have taken over her room. So the initial um, impression you get of them is not great, but uh, it's just really interesting throughout the course of the story, your perceptions of them as individuals, but them, them, them as as a couple as well, really start to shift. And like you said, you, you end up kind of, I don't know, like might be a little strong, but you can definitely sympathize with them more and kind of, see their humanity yeah it's not that they deserve better circumstances they haven't done anything mm-hmm. and th- and they're foolish for expecting it to happen out of nowhere mm-hmm. it's that they hope for it and it's that that sadness that you might feel for somebody who it again doesn't deserve better circumstances but maybe maybe deserves some respect and some mm-hmm. some some sympathy for both of them and and the the way that they treat each other is interesting as well because they they seem to have a genuine affection for each other at the same time they are they are using each other to perpetuate this myth but they yeah. seemed genuinely happy after they were first married and it's not clear how much of that was because they loved each other's company or because they got to spend those months in a mirage of of bliss in Paris, you know, mm-hmm. where they were able to spend their money, where they didn't have to worry about a job, where they were able to go out to dinner all the time and kind of rub shoulders with high society, where their future seemed to suggest, well, where their present seemed to suggest, this is how it's always going to be. Just well, go that, find your next job. That section, I had kind of set aside some beautiful passages because some of her writing is just, took my breath away. And and that exact part you're Mm -hmm. describing was one of them. So I'm just going to quickly read this. It says that winter was moist and delicate, so fragile that they daren't speak of it. Now there seemed to be plenty of everything and plenty of time. They were living the dream of a marriage, the fabric uncut, nothing slashed or spoiled all winter. They spent their money and went to parties and talked about Peter's future job. It lasted four months. They spent their money lived in the future and we're never as happy again. Yeah. I mean, talk about fitting in a huge chunk of time into one paragraph where you just get so much insight into these people. Um, that whole idea of lived in the future, I think really is important to the way they live their lives. Yeah. They're always hearing a rumor about some great job or they're always holding out like, oh, this isn't the one <laughs> for me. There's something else coming down the line pretty soon that's going to be even better. And so I think that that you know, gives a lot of insight. Uh, and we know from the first paragraph that none of these are going to work out because this is, you know, them looking back several years later. They have mm-hmm. kids, you know, they didn't have kids during this whole story that are, you know, 11 and 13. So it's been several years that they've been out meandering around Europe looking for, and, and India, you know, looking mm-hmm. for the the way, way they're going to make their fortune. But it's passing, but they don't they don't accept it. They're still living yeah. back then. They're still trying to and I thought it was great when they when they move away from Paris that they 
they still put on those clothes at night and like light candles in order mm-hmm. to pretend they're still at that time of life. And there's something touching about that and vulnerable. And yes, it's, it's easy for me to sit here and be like oh, foolish, you know, that you're kind you're unhappy and you're not willing to accept it. Here's a healthier way to live. But I recognize this stuff in my own life. You know, as life oh, yeah. passes and, and doors shut, you're, you're, you know, my dream to be, you know, independently wealthy and just enjoying every day by reading, that hasn't happened yet, <laughs> you know? Right. And I know that it's likely never going to, you know, your your dream, which I, you know, also feel uh, very attracted to of owning a bookstore and basically reading in the back room. Mm-hmm. You know, that's probably not going to happen. Um, but maybe a part of us still looks forward to this not this thing that's not going to happen. Um, <clears throat> and it's it. We're not. Uh, you know, this this is a pretty extreme case. Right. I don't think but it's kind of, of those are... delusions that kind of get you through life. You know, the, those those hopes and dreams, and in their case, mm-hmm. I would say delusions. Um, they are kind of what keep them going. You know, there's one part he says. Um, so basically, you know, Peter came from a pretty well-off family that was very well known, and that's clearly some of what's caused a little generations bit of this. ago. Though that was what yeah. I thought was that uh, that I didn't catch my first time through. Right, was that he he just like his wife didn't grow up the way they expect to live their life. He just happens to have had some generational um, benefits, but yeah. that had been dissipating for decades decades yeah generations maybe and there's this part where it says he's often tried to tell sheila why he cannot be defeated he remembers his father saying nothing can touch us and peter believed it and still does it has prevented his taking his troubles too seriously nothing can be as bad as this he will tell himself it is happening to me and i just Mm -hmm. thought wow that like again a few sentences and you just get this huge insight into his whole personality and kind of his background and how he's kind of been shaped and and kind of trained to believe some of these things. And (laughs) so good. Well, I'm going to step back just a bit, not because I don't want to follow you, but this is going to be a little bit disjointed. I've been kind of going through my notes here and came across Mm -hmm. a paragraph where Gallant writes about their time after Paris that I I just talked about, but she says it so well. I'm just going to read the little part. Yeah, do it. It says, Peter's wife had loved him in Paris. Whatever she wanted in marriage, she found that winter there. In Geneva, where Peter was a file clerk and they lived in a furnished flat, she pretended they were in Paris and life was still the same. <laughs> yeah. And I just think it's amazing. It's amazing. And, and she, Oh, I'll, I'll go on here a little bit. She wore the Balenciaga and put candles on the card table where she and Peter ate their meal. The neckline of the dress was soiled with makeup. This is one of those little details that shows, you know, we we see it. Uh, Peter remembers her dabbing on the makeup with a wet sponge. He remembers her in the kitchen in the soiled Balenciaga patting on the makeup with a filthy sponge. This is that digging Mm. deeper into that thing he just described. Um, Behind her at the kitchen table, Sandra and Jennifer, those are their daughters, in buttonless pajamas and bunny slippers, ate their supper of marmalade, sandwiches, and milk. When the children were asleep, the parents dined solemnly, ritually, 
she listening straight as a queen. I know I said a few minutes ago they were childless at this time. Um, clearly that's wrong. You know, again, one of those, I guess I forgot that the children are there while they're still trying to live out this dream of their early days marriage where well, the future is bright and, and happy. The children well, the are almost, she... uh, you know, they, they need to put them to bed to perpetuate that illusion. Yeah, no, I think you're right. And and it's such a complex story, the way it jumps around in time and, and memories and things like that, that I have plenty of those where I, you know, some of the details might get lost, but that's what's interesting. And we were saying there's not spoilers really is it's more about the psychology and what's happening. Um, so to the point that it doesn't really matter if you miss a few of the details. And that's why this story is so rich is I really think this is one of those you could reread over and over and over mm-hmm. again. And every single time you would discover something new. Um, well, and we haven't even gotten to the, the heart of the story. Peter yeah. thinks back on it. He thinks it's important to note that in that first paragraph, he's thinking back on Agnes uh, Bruson. Mm-hmm. I don't know how to say her name. And I think Agnes is right, but Bruson, Bruson, I don't know. Um, he thinks back on her, but he doesn't bring her up with his wife. There's something there. Mm-hmm. Um, but we meet her. She works in Geneva at the same place as Peter. And we we understand later on, she's got her own past and her own thing that she's trying to come out of. <clears throat> Peter kind of thinks she's there to serve and help him, but she has the bigger desk. She's more respected. You know, he's just living that, that illusion. I know. That part is really interesting where he <laughs> just assumes that she's there, like you said, as like an assistant. And then also <laughs> as the reader, you start to realize, no, I don't think that's what's going on. Yeah. And she is friends with a well-to-do family that Peter and Sheila feel they should be more involved with. And so I love the part where Sheila is asking Peter, you sit with her every day. You must talk about something. She must have told you. How how does she know this, this other family? I can't remember their names right now. Um, And he, he, kind of says he doesn't know all the reasons but she says you should know said sheila she must have something more than what you can see is she pretty is she brilliant what is it you know there's just this mystery of who is this person mm-hmm. who seems to be living the life we want to live well and who he describes as a the mole they're uh-huh. described as peacocks he describes her as a mole yeah a, a round-shouldered mole yeah he doesn't he doesn't find her pretty or attractive um and yet, and yet, <laughs> so I don't know. I, and I don't even know exactly where to go. I mean, eventually they have this party at the house of the Burleys. That's the name of the wealthy, mm-hmm. you know, well-to-do couple. They have this, um, this party at the Burleys house and the Peter and, and Sheila show up a little out of place for sure. They well, don't wear, Oh, go ahead. Oh, sorry. I don't mean to interrupt that. It's just when you talked about when I start to think that they don't, their relationship is so interesting to me because in a lot of ways, it seems like it's not a healthy relationship, but there's a part when they're going into that party. And just when you mentioned that, if you don't mind, it says Mm -hmm. they were and are a united couple. They were afraid of the party and each of them knew it. When they walk together, holding arms, they give each other whatever each can spare. And I thought, wow, like you would, if I were writing this story, uh, or even just expecting any other writer to be writing this story, I would expect it to really lean into their toxic relationship, that they don't yeah. share love, that they have no nothing really going for them. They're just um, parasites together. 
Mm-hmm. And maybe they are, but that has fed them. And there is some some genuine feelings there. Um, yeah. Appreciation. He, he is concerned about Sheila uh, when they get to the party. Probably because he's a little bit patronizing. You know, he himself is out of, um, is, is not really, doesn't really belong. Mm-hmm. Uh, but he's looking at her like, oh, poor Sheila. She was new to this part of it. To the changing humors of independent friends, you know, like he's <clears throat> so mm-hmm. high and mighty, but she's doing the same thing to him. <clears throat> and well, so yeah. together they they keep up this illusion that they both need. And I think they appreciate it of each other. <laughs> I do, too. But then there's that part once they get inside the the party because so they're they're united as they go in. But then there's this part when they go in and it says a few minutes later, Peter was alone again. And Sheila, part of a closed uh-huh. laughing group, Peter edged into the group <laughs> and laughed at a story he hadn't heard. Looking out from the tight laughing ring, he saw Agnes again. So Agnes has showed up to the party and she is wearing a costume and she seems like she's kind of out of place and trying to fit in, but doesn't. And then Peter's mind, you know, she's on the outside and, and the, the couple is on the inside. So it says, looking out from the tight laughing ring, he saw Agnes again. And he thought, I'd be like Agnes if I didn't have Sheila. I thought that part was really fascinating too. It's like he has this moment of insight. Yeah. And his ego breaks down for a minute and he realizes like, I'd be the wallflower if it wasn't for Sheila, who is kind of drawing him into all these groups where he might not otherwise fit in. So yeah, uh, just that's what I mean about the complexity of this story where you start to think you have a a bead on a certain character and then one sentence will drop in like that and and it just shakes everything up. That's a really good way of putting it. Um, What are their angles? And it's true that as this goes along, as this party goes along, Peter seems to start having insights into who he is. And yes, his wife is out there trying to find them their next job. Um, mm-hmm. And and he, meanwhile, is is having the, this moment of insight that he doesn't share with his wife. You know, again, we, we see that at the beginning. He doesn't talk to her about Agnes. She knows about Agnes, and she especially knows about what happens next. Agnes gets drunk and and Peter escorts her home. Nothing happens at their home. But you know Peter knows it could have. Agnes doesn't know whether it did or didn't. Um though he reassures her nothing happened. But there's the thing where Sheila doesn't seem to care. Yeah. Um well, yeah, not only does she not seem to care. I don't know what you thought, but he comes home. He has this moment where he's like, "Boy, I'm late. She's probably been home for an hour." Like I better get home and uh-huh. he gets home and the house is empty and then a car pulls up outside and he hears her and somebody else like laughing and she comes in and like, he asks several questions. Where were you? Whose car is that? And she kind of blows him off. And so that was another area where it doesn't really spell out what happened. Yeah. But you're like, boy, what else is going on in the background? Um, yep. And I don't know if I'm reading too many passages, but you had said nothing happened between Agnes and Peter. But there's this one. Can I just read a couple of Yeah, yeah. Complicate uh, that for me. <laughs> yeah, because she, like you said, she was drunk. She has never really had any drinks in her life. It doesn't sound like she's very innocent, but she, for whatever reason, has this moment of weakness. And so he escorts her home. And so he's in her apartment and he's getting ready to leave. And it says, she pressed her face and rubbed her cheek on his shoulder as if hoping the contact would leave a scar. He saw her back and her profile and his own face in the mirror over the fireplace. He thought, This is how disasters happen. He saw floods of seawater moving with perfect punitive justice over reclaimed land. 
He saw lava covering vineyards and overtaking dogs and stragglers. A bridge over an abyss snapped in two, and the long express train, suddenly V-shaped, floated like snow. He thought amiably of every kind of disaster and thought, this is how they occur. And that was an, another part where like, oh my God, like he thought amiably of every kind of disaster. Like, it's like, ah, oh, she is so complicated and, and just like you said, nothing actually happens, but that gives you an insight in his head of like, maybe how close something mm-hmm. came to happening for and sure. Just mm-hmm. What, what could have like this disaster that was barely, ba- was barely averted. And I feel like that paragraph kind of sums up why months later or years later at the beginning of the story her name keeps coming back into his mind as this kind of secret is on the surface nothing happened but boy internally a whole lot did happen yeah for sure no that's a good point i thought you were maybe going to suggest that something did happen in the you know in the external world and and wasn't wasn't sure but i think nothing did no i don't think so either but but you're right that this she becomes for him and it's not just that moment of you know this this is a disaster that they you know could could happen um it probably is happening with his wife who's just looking at this as almost like a a partnership now where hey we're 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 in this together i'm not going to leave you mm-hmm. um you know we're going to go and enjoy india together um but she's going to do what she needs to to get it and i think she's okay with him doing things that he wants to and that's pretty sad. And I think that starts to open up to Peter what Agnes is going through and recognizing it in his own life, uh, the, the complications of it all. And I don't know, should we should we kind of just dig into that last, that last, long, not the whole long, I won't read the whole long paragraph, but, you know, yeah, Agnes... I think we can try that last little bit is about as complex as anything I think I've read in a long time. It's I yeah I, I don't know what's going on, but maybe we'll maybe we'll talk and get some insights. Mm-hmm. Um, she has told him Agnes has told Peter about a, when she was a, a girl. She had a lot of siblings younger than her, and the only quiet and peace she could have was in the morning when she'd wake up and see the ice wagon going down the street. It was a moment that was hers. It was before everything was busy, and it was a moment of you know, clarity, I'll put that in quotes because she was able to see outside of the the tight confines of her life at that particular time. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, it leads to um, some, some of her own illusions, but she's, she's going forward. You know, she's, she's making it a little bit. And at the end, there's this weird conflating in Peter's mind of him with Agnes. And it says, he thinks of the ice wagon going down the street. You know, he wasn't there. That's Agnes's memory. But he's right. thinking of that. He sees something he has never seen in his life, a Western town that belongs to Agnes. Here is Agnes, small, mole-faced, round-shouldered, because she has always carried a younger child. She watches the ice wagon and the trail of water in a morning invented for her. Hers. He sees the weak prairie trees and the shadows on the sidewalk. Nothing moves except the shadows and the ice wagon and the changing amber of the child's eyes. The child is Peter. Peter has seen the grain of the cement sidewalk and the grass in the cracks and the dust and the dandelions at the edge of the road. He is there. He has taken the morning that belongs to Agnes. He is up before the others and he knows everything. 
There is nothing he doesn't know. He could keep the morning if he wanted to, but what can Peter do with the start of a summer day? Sheila is here. It is a true Sunday morning, with its dimness and headache and remorse and regrets. And this is life. He touches Sheila's hand. The children have have their aunt now, and he and Sheila have each other. Everything works out somehow or other. Let Agnes have the start of the day. Let Agnes think it was invented for her. Who wants to be alone in the universe? No, begin at the beginning. Peter lost Agnes. Agnes says to herself somewhere, Peter is lost. Wow. (laughs) I had to read that, you know, five times. And that is like, seriously, that has to be one of the more complex things I've ever read. And yet it seems right. It seems... Usually, you know, it, it clicks into place, but not in a way that makes sense. I can't tell you what what that means at the end. I don't know what Peter being the child means. I don't know what he's taking from Agnes. I don't know why she herself somewhere is thinking Peter is lost. She, I, I wouldn't expect her to be thinking about Peter ever. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, what is, what is it? What is going on? What is this doing? What is this saying? I don't, I don't know, but I, I, I think it's right. <laughs> yeah. Well, and I think we're in good company with Francine Prose and Jhumpa Lahiri in not knowing because that's specifically what they say that they love about this story is how it kind of broke their brains mm-hmm. and, and just keeps drawing them back to, to examine it. Yeah. Oh, my God. That, <laughs> that story as a whole throughout had so many minor moments like that, like, like I said, where it would drop in a sentence or a paragraph that would shift everything. And then talk about like, you know, at a fireworks show, you have the grand finale. I feel like that's what that was right there is just like letting it all hang out and just takes your breath away. And it is hard when you read that not to go, oh, maybe I better reread this story so I understand what's actually going on there. And you get to it again and it makes sense, but not on a level that make that I can know what it actually is saying but it mm-hmm. makes i don't know it's weird it makes sense no, it but i yeah. it makes no sense at the same time i it, it makes sense on a visceral level not on a conscious thought level i can't i can't yeah. quite figure out what it is uh, other than will, it's true <laughs> it's true yeah like you said i like that it's on a gut level that you get it and so powerful yeah i really i'm thrilled that you picked that story i I've been meaning to read more of hers. I read a couple of her novellas um, that NYRB put out, A Fairly Good Time and Green Water, Green Sky. And I remember really liking them, but I don't remember them being quite on this level. And so maybe mm-hmm. there is a reason that she's known for her short stories, but I I want to dig in more to Gallant in general. Um, yeah. Yeah, maybe, well, maybe I'll p- keep going on this collection, actually. Part in that Granta article with Jhumpa Lahiri, she talks about after reading this, she asked her parents one, you know, I think Christmas of 1997 or something. I don't know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, for her big, <clears throat> Gallant's big collection, like 900 pages of her collected stories. And that that's what she did for a long time was just read that collection. Mm-hmm. And so I do know people love, it isn't just that Gallant wrote this story and everything else is, you know, on the side from what I understand this is just one of her many many great stories and so I'm I'm excited too 
Yeah. Well, to be clear, even a fairly good time in, in the other one, like I, especially a fairly good time. It, it was a really, really good novella. I'm not trying to disparage it at all. I'm just saying that, yeah, sometimes I think stories are where some of these authors shine, like we've talked about. And I think that might be the case here, but yeah, I think we're in good company because I know Jhumpa Lahiri, her, two of her very favorite writers are Mavis Gallant and uh, William Trevor. Mm-hmm. I've heard her interviewed and, and read about it. So, yeah. Well, I'm excited to do this again, Paul. The, both the the assigned reading and this conversation. I've got a lot more out of these stories just by sitting here and having a good chat about them. And I'm excited to do it again with, with a couple of different ones. Maybe we'll do a novella next time. Maybe one day we'll do a book. But... Promise we'll share them a little bit more in advance with you listeners so that you don't come into an episode feeling maybe we put one out that wasn't for you to listen to at the moment. Yeah. Um, But I would encourage, as always, everybody too, like those of you who are familiar with these authors or these stories, or maybe you're reading them for the first time now alongside us, we'd love to hear your thoughts too. Because with both of these stories, there are so many levels that I'm sure that I I know that I missed. and, And I think these are the kind of stories that benefit from a variety of perspectives and voices weighing in on them. Cause there's no right answer. I don't think on something like this. And I would say, even if it's a while from now, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe you're listening to this episode sometime in the future <laughs> and you come across these for the first time, still send us your thoughts. So we'd be happy to revisit and, and share listener feedback uh, and share your thoughts on these stories. Um, as they as they come along and we'll love to do that with everything so if you have any feedback any comments about things we've talked about in the past completely feel free to share with us we, we love it and let's uh let's end this episode with just a, maybe a quick uh recommendation paul yeah absolutely so i will just quickly recommend um i don't know if you are a fan of ken burns Oh yeah, but, mm-hmm. yeah. I I really have enjoyed a lot of the stuff that he's done over the years. Obviously, the the Civil War and um, some of the other ones that he's done, the baseball one that he did. But I just recently watched the one on Hemingway, which is mm-hmm. a three part six hour documentary, um, and it's available through PBS here in the states. I don't know exactly you know how accessible it is for everybody, but if there's a way you can track it down. It's just in typical Ken Burns fashion. He just does a really good job. It's It digs into just his life. It's divided up. It, there's a first section called a writer, then the avatar, and then the blank page. And it involves all kinds of different writers weighing in. You know, Edna O'Brien is on there, Mario Vargas Llosa, Abraham Verghese, Tobias Wolf, you know, Hemingway's son, Patrick comes in. So as always, it's immaculately researched so many cool photos, details, readings from his books. And anybody who's concerned, because I know Hemingway is problematic in many ways, don't worry, that is dug into. It's not sugar-coated. It's not some kind mm-hmm. of idolatrous, you know, like sugar-coated version of things. It, it gets into all the warts and everything else. But yeah, I thought it was really well done, just fascinating, all kinds of celebrity readings and different things to to add some value to it. But if you're a fan of Ken Burns, even if you're not a fan of Hemingway, but just, you know, I think most of our audience really enjoys digging into just literature and authors and things like that. Um, yeah, it's, it's really good. I would highly recommend so that everybody check that out. I remember when that was coming out, I was trying, I was 
going to try to keep up with it and missed um, the second episode. And so I haven't mm. gone back to, to catch up again, but yeah, I think we, we got have... it from the library. Um, we ended up getting it, you know, through the library, just the DVDs and, and we watched it over the course of a couple of weeks. Cause I mean, it's, it's in depth and long, but yeah, it's, it's so good. And I, yeah. it actually inspired me. I haven't done it yet, but I pulled his book of collected stories off the shelf. Cause I remember speaking of assigned reading, I remember reading Hills Like White Elephants in college, and that was one of those where oh, just the dialogue in, in that story, mm-hmm. for all of his problems, you know, he is he is an amazing writer, and some of the dialogue in particular that he comes up with has stuck with me for my entire life. So anyway, yeah, I would definitely recommend that one. Well, I'll do a quick one. I finally watched uh, the, 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 the film adaptation of Sir Gawain and the Green Knight, that director david lowry put together a little bit ago it was released in july of last year it was supposed to come out earlier but covid stuff like that so this is the green knight i've read sir gowan and the green knight back Mm -hmm. in college and i'm glad that i did because this was a fun revisit of some of the weird things in that story but man this is a very trippy strange I don't think the movie knows quite what it was wanting to do, but in a good way. I mean that in a good way. Like, I think it didn't care. I think it was like, no, we're putting together images and, and feelings. And, you know, we've talked about that a little bit (laughs) in in the book you were reading at the beginning of of that. Um, But it's a pretty trippy, strange fantasy movie. Um, that's based on the Green Knight. It's got him going off to to be beheaded by the Green Knight, but having that sash that's supposed to protect him. And I mean, I guess maybe you can look at it as it's a story about Gowan as a young, you know, kind of fits in with the, the ice wagon go, going down the street. It's Sir Gowan is a young man, a little brash, and it's his coming of age and kind of maybe recognizing a few of those things. It's pretty sad, but it's very elliptical in in the way that it tells its story um there are parts that are dream sequences that you don't know are dream sequences until sometime later on and then you're like whoa okay wait (laughs) but yes i would recommend it it's quite the strange film um the green knight by david lowry yeah i i was not that one was not on my radar but i was looking it up while you were talking and it definitely looks appealing i yeah, not to keep talking about this, but assigned reading Green Knight. That's definitely something I was assigned in college. <laughs> yeah, that that I would like to revisit it. Maybe this would be a good good excuse to do that. I think so. I think so. You might. I think one might inform the other. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the movie will make more sense with a revisit, and I think maybe the story will have some fun things when you have some of the the fun interpretations of this that that come in this film. But yeah. <clears throat> All right, well, Paul, thanks for doing the assigned reading. We'll be back in a couple of weeks. We're going to be talking about a publisher, one of our favorites. Until then. <laughs> All right, thanks, everybody. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Mooks and the Gripes podcast. You can follow the Mooks and the Gripes and get show notes and book and film reviews at mooksandgripes.com. On Twitter, you can follow Trevor at Mooks and Paul at BiblioPaul. You can also get information about future shows on our Patreon. 
If you'd like to donate to the show, anything and everything, even a dollar a month helps and is deeply appreciated. You can become a Patreon at patreon.com slash mooks. Until next time. Thank you.